Section 82 of The United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The World's Story, Volume 13, The United States, edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 82. Alabama Dressmaking in the Days of the Blockade. 1861 through 1865 by Parthenia Antoinette Haig. Before the war, there were in the South but few cotton mills. These were kept running night and day as soon as the Confederate Army was organized, and we were ourselves prevented by the blockade from purchasing clothing from the factories at the North or clothing imported from France or England. The cotton which grew in the immediate vicinity of the mills kept them well supplied with raw material. Yet, notwithstanding the great push of the cotton mills, they proved totally inadequate, after the war began, to our vast need for clothing of every kind. Every household now became a miniature factory in itself, with its cotton, cards, spinning wheels, warping frames, looms, and so on. Wherever one went, the hum of the spinning wheel and the clang of the batten of the loom was borne on the ear. Great trouble was experienced in the beginning to find dyes with which to color our stuffs, but in the course of time, both at the old mills and at smaller experimental factories which were run entirely by hand, barks, leaves, roots, and berries were found containing coloring properties. I was well acquainted with a gentleman in southwestern Georgia who owned a small cotton mill, and who, when he wanted coloring substances, used to send his wagons to the woods and freight them with a shrub known as myrtle that grew teeming in low moist places near his mill. This myrtle yielded a nice gray for woolen goods. That the slaves might be well clad, the owners kept, according to the number of slaves owned, a number of Negro women carding and spinning, and had looms running all the time. Now and then a planter would be so fortunate as to secure a bale or more of white sheeting and Osnobergs from the cotton mills in exchange for farm products, which would be quite a lift, and give a little breathing spell from the almost incessant whir, hum, and clang of the spinning wheel and loom. Wide, unbleached sheeting was also used for making dresses, and when dyed a deep, solid color and tastefully made up, the effect was quite handsome. On one occasion, when Mr. G. had been fortunate in getting a bale of unbleached factory sheeting, Mrs. G. gave to me, to her two oldest daughters and a niece of hers, who was as one of the family, enough of the sheeting to make each one of us a dress. We had to hie us to the woods for coloring matter, to dye as each one pleased. I have often joined with neighbors, when school hours for the day were over, in gathering roots, barks, leaves, twigs, sumac berries, and walnuts for the holes, which dyed wool a beautiful dark brown. Such was the variety we had to choose from, to dye our cloth and thread. We used to pull our way through the deep, tangled woods, by thickly shaded streams, through broad fields, and return laden with the riches of the southern forest. Not infrequently, clusters of grapes mingled with our freight of dyes. The pine tree's roots furnished a beautiful dye, approximating very close to garnet, which color I chose for the sheeting for my dress. A strong decoction of the roots of the pine tree was used. Caparis of our own production was used as the mordant. A cask or some small vessel was set convenient to the dwelling house and partly filled with water, in which a small quantity of salt and vinegar had been mingled. Then pieces of rusty useless iron, such as plows too much worn to be used again, rusty broken nails, old horseshoes, and bits of old chains, were picked up and cast into the cask. 
the liquid copperas was always ready and a very good substance we found it to fix colors in cloth or thread the sheeting for the dress was folded smoothly and basted slightly so as to keep the folds in place it was first thoroughly soaked in warm soap suds then dipped into the dye and afterwards into a vessel containing liquid lye from wood ashes then it went again into the dye then the lye and so on till the garnet color was the required shade by varying the strength of the solution any shade desirable could be obtained my garnet colored dress of unbleached sheeting was often mistaken for worsted delaine many of the planters in southern alabama began to grow wool on quite a large scale as the war went on and no woolen goods could be had all the woolen material that could be manufactured at the cotton mills was used to clothe our soldiers so that all the varied kinds of woolen goods that hitherto had been used with us had now to be of home handmake in this we achieved entire success all kinds of woolen goods flannels both colored and white plaids of bright colors which we thought equal to the famed scotch plaids balmorals which were then in fashion were woven with grave or gay borders as suited our fancy woolen coverlets and blankets were also manufactured the woolen blankets were at first woven with the warp of cotton thread but a woman of our settlement improved on that by weaving some blankets on the common house loom both warp and woof of wool spun by her own hands the borders were bright red and blue of texture soft and yielding they were almost equal to those woven at a regular woolen mill the process of weaving all wool blankets with warp and woof hand spun was quite tedious yet it was accomplished various kinds of twilled woolen cloth were also woven in weaving coverlets the weaver had the draft before her to guide her in tramping the petals and throwing the design of flower vine leaf square or diamond on the right side beautiful carpets were also made on the same plan as coverlets many of the planters after the shearing of their sheep used to carry the wool to the nearest cotton mill and have it carted into rolls to facilitate the making of woolen cloth and often large quantities of lint cotton were hauled to the factories to be carted into rolls to be spun at home but carting rolls by common hand cards was a rather slow and tiresome process there was some pleasant rivalry as to who should be the most successful in producing the brightest and clearest tinge of color on thread or cloth most of the women of southern alabama had small plats of ground for cultivating the indigo bush for making indigo blue or indigo mud as it was sometimes called the indigo weed also grew abundantly in the wild state in our vicinage those who do not care to bother with indigo cultivation used to gather from the woods the weed in the wild state when in season enough of the blue was always made either from the wild or cultivated indigo plant we used to have our regular indigo churnings as they were called when the weed had matured sufficiently for making the blue mud which was about the time the plant began to flower the plants were cut close to the ground our steeping vats were closely packed with the weed and water enough to cover the plant was poured in the vat was then left eight or nine days undisturbed for fermentation to extract the dye then the plant was rinsed out so to speak and the water in the vat was churned up and down with a basket for quite a while weak lye was added as a precipitate which caused the indigo particles held in solution to fall to the bottom of the vat the water was poured off and the mud was placed in a sack and hung up to drip and dry it was just as clear and bright a blue as if it had passed through a more elaborate process the woods as well as being the great storehouse for all our dye stuffs were also our drug stores 
the berries of the dogwood tree were taken for quinine as they contained the alkaloid properties of cinchona and peruvian bark a soothing and efficacious cordial for dysentery and similar ailments was made from blackberry roots but ripe persimmons when made into a cordial were thought to be far superior to blackberry roots an extract of the barks of the wild cherry dogwood poplar and wahoo trees was used for chills and agues for coughs and all lung diseases a syrup was made with the leaves and roots of the mullein plant globe flower and wild cherry tree bark was thought to be infallible of course the castor bean plant was gathered in the wild state in the forest for making castor oil many also cultivated a few rows of poppies in their garden to make opium from which our laudanum was created and this at times was very needful the manner of extracting opium from poppies was of necessity crude in our hedged round situation it was indeed simple in the extreme the heads or bulbs of the poppies were plucked when ripe the capsules pierced with a large-sized sewing needle and the bulbs placed in some small vessel a cup or saucer would answer for the opium gum to exude and to become insipated by evaporation the soporific influence of this drug was not excelled by that of the imported article bicarbonate of soda which had been in use for raising bread before the war became a thing of the past soon after the blockade began but it was not long ere someone found out that the ashes of corn cobs possessed the alkaline property essential for raising dough whenever soda was needed corn was shelled care being taken to select all the red cobs as they were thought to contain more carbonate of soda than white cobs when the cobs were burned in a clean swept place the ashes were gathered up and placed in a jar or jug and so many measures of water were poured in according to the quantity of ashes when needed for bread making a teaspoonful or tablespoonful of the alkali was used to the measure of flour or meal required another industry to which the need of the times gave rise was the making of pottery which although not food or clothing was indispensable of course our earthenware was rough coarse and brown and its enamelling would have caused a smile of disdain from the ancient etruscans nevertheless we found our brown glazed plates cups and saucers washbowls and pitchers and milk crocks exceedingly convenient and useful as temporary expedients as no tin pans could be had and we were thankful that we could make this homely ware all in our settlement learned to card spin and weave and that was the case with all the women in the south when the blockade closed us in now and then it is true a steamer would run the blockade but the few articles in the line of merchandise that reached us served only as a reminder of the outside world and of our once great plenty now almost forgotten and also more forcibly to remind us that we must depend on our own ingenuity to supply the necessities of existence our days of novitiate were short we soon became very apt at knitting and crocheting useful as well as ornamental woolen notions such as capes sacks van dykes shawls gloves socks stockings and men's suspenders the clippings of lamb's wool were especially used by us for crocheting or knitting shawls gloves capes sacks and hoods our needles for such knitting were made of seasoned hickory or oak wood a foot long or even longer lamb's wool clippings when carded and spun fine by hand and dyed bright colors were almost the peer of the zephyr wool now sold to have the hanks spotted or variegated they were tightly braided or plaited and so dyed when the braids were unfolded a beautiful dappled color would result sometimes corn husks were wrapped around the hanks at regular or irregular spaces and made fast with strong thread so that when placed in the dye the encased parts as was intended would imbibe little or no dye and when knit crocheted or woven would present a clouded or dappled appearance 
handsome mittens were knit or crocheted of the same lamb's wool dyed jet black gray garnet or whatever color was preferred a bordering of vines with green leaves and rosebuds of bright colors was deftly knitted in on the edge and top of the gloves various designs of flowers or other patterns were used for gloves and were so skillfully knitted in that they formed the exact representation of the copy from which they were taken for the bordering of capes shawls gloves hoods and sacks the wool yarn was dyed red blue black and green of course intermediate colors were employed in some cases the juice of pokeberries dyed a red as bright as aniline but this was not very good for wash stuffs a strong decoction of the bark of the hickory tree made a clear bright green on wool when alum could be had as mordant sometimes there were those who by some odd chance happened to have a bit of alum there grew in some spots in the woods though very sparsely a weed about a foot and a half high called the queen's delight which dyed a jet black on wool we have frequently gone all of two miles from our home and after a wide range of the woods would perhaps secure only a small armful of this precious weed we did not wonder at the name it was so scarce and rare as well as the only one of all the weeds roots barks leaves or berries that would dye jet black the indigo blue of our make would dye blue of almost any shade required and the hulls of walnuts a most beautiful brown so that we were not lacking for bright and deep colors for borderings here again a pleasant rivalry arose as to who could form the most unique bordering for capes shawls and all such woolen knit or crocheted clothing there were squares diamonds crosses bars and designs of flowers formed in knitting and in crocheting we were our own wool sorters too and after the shearing had our first choice of the fleeces all the fine soft silky locks of wool were selected for use in knitting and crocheting our shoes particularly those of women and children were made of cloth or knit someone had learned to knit slippers and it was not long before most of the women in our settlement had a pair of slippers on the knitting needles they were knit of our homespun thread either cotton or wool which was for slippers generally dyed a dark brown gray or black when taken off the needles the slippers or shoes were lined with cloth of suitable texture the upper edges were bound with strips of cloth of color to blend with the hue of the knitwork a rosette was formed of some stray bits of ribbon or scraps of fine bits of merino or silk and placed on the uppers of the slippers then they were ready for the soles we explored the seldom visited attic and lumber room and overhauled the contents of old trunks boxes and scrap bags for pieces of casimir merino broadcloth or other heavy fine-twilled goods to make our sunday shoes as we could not afford to wear shoes of such fine stuff every day home-woven jeans and heavy plain cloth had to answer for everyday wear when one was so fortunate as to get a bolt of osnaburgs scraps of that made excellent shoes when colored what is now called the baseball shoe always reminds me of our wartime colored osnaburgs but ours did not have straps of leather like those which crossed the baseball shoe our slippers and shoes which were made of fine bits of cloth cost us a good deal of labor in binding and stitching with colors and thread to blend with the material used before they were sent to the shoemaker to have them sold sometimes we put on the soles ourselves by taking worn-out shoes whose soles were thought sufficiently strong to carry another pair of uppers ripping the soles off placing them in warm water to make them more pliable and to make it easier to pick out all the old stitches and then in the same perforations stitching our knit slippers or cloth-made shoes we also had to cut out soles for shoes from our home tanned leather with the sole of an old shoe as our pattern and with an awl perforate the sole for sewing on the upper 
I was often surprised at the dexterity with which we could join soles and uppers together, the shoes being reversed during the stitching, and when finished, turned right side out again. And I smile even now as I remember how we used to hold our self-made shoe at arm's length and say as they were inspected, what is the blockade to us, so far as shoes are concerned, when we can not only knit the uppers, but cut the soles and stitch them on? Each woman and girl her own shoemaker. Away with bought shoes, we want none of them. But alas, we really knew not how fickle a few months would prove that we were. Our sewing thread was of our own make. Spools of coat's thread, which was universally used in the South before the war, had long been forgotten. For very fine sewing thread, great care had to be used in drawing the strand of cotton evenly as well as finely. It was a wearisome task, and great patience had to be exercised, as there was continual snapping of the fine hand-spun thread. From brooches of such spun sewing thread, balls of the cotton were wound, from two to three strands double, according as how coarse or fine thread was needed. The ball was then placed into a bowl of warm soap suds, and the thread twisted onto a bobbin of corn husks placed on the spindle of the wheel. During the process of twisting the thread, a miniature fountain would be set playing from the thread as it twirled upon the spindle. Bunch thread from the cotton mill, number 12, made very strong sewing thread, but little could we afford of that. It was exceedingly scarce. When the web of cloth, especially that of factory bunch thread, had been woven as closely up as the sleigh and harness could permit the warp openings for the shuttle to pass through, the ends of the weaver's threads, or thrums, generally a yard long when taken from around the large cloth beam, would be cut from the cloth and made into sewing thread. We spent many evenings around the fire if winter time, or lamp if summer weather, drawing the threads singly from the bunch of thrums and then tying together two or three strands, as the thread was to be coarse or fine. It was also wound into balls and twisted in the same manner as other sewing thread. The ball would be full of knots, but a good needleful of thread, perhaps more, could always be had in between the knots. There were rude frames in most people's yards for making rope out of cotton thread, spun very coarse, and quite a quantity of such rope was made on these roperies. A comical incident occurred at one of the rope makings which I attended. One afternoon I had gone out in the yard with several members of the household to observe the method of twisting the long coil of rope by a windlass attached to one end of the frame after it had been run off the brooches onto the frame. Two of the smaller girls were amusing themselves, running back and forth under the rope while it was being slowly twisted, now and then giving it a tap with their hands as they ducked under it, when, just as it was drawn to its tightest tension, it parted from the end of the frame opposite the windlass, and in its curved rebound caught one of the little girls by the hair of her head. There was music in the air for some little time, for it was quite a task to free her hair from the hard, twisted coils of rope. Our hats and bonnets were of our own manufacture. For those we had at the beginning of the war had been covered anew, made over, turned and changed until none of the original remained. As we had no flowers of sulfur to bleach our white straw bonnets and hats, we colored those we had with walnut hulls and made them light or dark brown as we wished. Then we ripped up our tarlatan party dresses of red, white, blue or buff, some all gold and silver bespangled, to trim hats with. Neighbor would divide with neighbor the tarlatan for trimming purposes and some would go quite a distance for only enough to trim a hat. For the plumes of our hats or bonnets, the feathers of the old drake answered admirably, and were often plucked, as many will remember, for that very purpose. Quaker or shaker bonnets were also woven by the women of Alabama out of the bulrushes that grew very tall in marshy places. 
those rushes were placed in the opening of the threads of warp by hand and were woven the same as if the shuttle had passed them through those the width of the warp were always used the bonnets were cut in shape and lined with tarlatan the skirt of the shaker was made of single slayed cloth as we called it in common woven heavy cloth two threads of warp were passed through the reeds of the sleigh for the skirts of our bonnets we wanted the cloth soft and light hence only one thread was passed through the reeds and that was lightly tapped by the batten it was then soft and yielding when the cloth was dyed with willow bark which colored a beautiful drab we thought our bonnets equal to those we had bought in days gone by there was variety enough of material to make hats for both men and women palmetto taking the lead for hats for sunday wear the straw of oats or wheats and corn husks were braided and made into hats hats which were almost everlasting we used to think were made of pine straw hats were made of cloth also i remember one in particular of gray jeans stitched in small diamonds with black silk thread it was as perfect a hat as was ever moulded by the hatter but the oddness of that hat consisted in its being stitched on the sewing machine with silk thread all sewing machines in our settlement were at a standstill during the period of the war as our homemade thread was not suited to machines and all sewing had to be done by hand we also became quite skilled in making designs of palmetto and straw braiding and plaiting for hats fans baskets and mats we made of the braided palmetto and straw also then there was the bonnet squash known also as the spanish dish rag that was cultivated by some for making bonnets and hats for women and children such hats presented a fine appearance but they were rather heavy many would make the frame for their bonnets or hats then cover it with the small white feathers and down of the goose color bright red with the juice of pokeberries or blue with indigo mud some of the larger feathers and on a small wire form a wreath or plume with bright colored and white feathers blended together or if no wire was convenient a fold or two of heavy cloth or paper doubled was used to sew the combination of feathers on for wreath plume or rosette tastefully arranged this made a hat or bonnet by no means rustic looking end of section eighty two this recording is in the public domain Recording by Colleen McMahon